a beautiful uh, description of worship, of losing ourselves by bringing God praise, the praise that he deserves. It's good to gre- dedicate little huts into the Lord, to see um, Charity's mom and dad, the Crowders here. Welcome, Crowders, to see Jeff's dad, our basketball coach here. But let me make one more introduction, actually two. I'd like to introduce to you um, a Kelly Muehlbauer. Now, Kelly is the engaged um, person to Jimmy. And uh, this may be one of the last times you see Jimmy before he gets married. So would you stand Jimmy and Kelly? This is the betrothed Jimmy and Kelly from Minnesota. <laughs> and also Rachel. Rachel's back. Rachel Green, she's from Alabama. She came up through the, uh, the tornadoes and all to be up here this weekend. This is Rachel. Welcome, Rachel. Yay. <laughs> well, I hope you're enjoying this series on worship as much as I am. At the same time, we're teaching about worship. We've been, trying, we've been asking you and your family to support the position of pastor of worship. Our desire is to have really powerful, God-honoring worship in our church. So we're on this faith journey, and uh, we have a vision from God. We try to convey that vision to you. And we've been in a search process of 18 persons. We've narrowed it down to one. And Scott Avey is the person whom we are going to be considering in a couple of weeks. We've asked people to fast and pray for guidance, direction, confirmation. And we're feeling the decision is being confirmed by so many of you. And financially, God is providing, but there's still room to come on board and help us. So pray about that. We're going to decide on Tuesday, pastors and elders, whether to move forward on the 18th with the vote. So a metaphor for life. There are two uh, different metaphors for life. The first I want to bring to you is that life is like a cruise ship. (laughs) You know, on the cruise ship, life is pretty sweet. They, They serve you. On the cruise ship, you know, you get 14 meals a day, including the midnight buffet. And they uh, fluff up your pillow, right? And they uh, put on a show for you. How many like to say that life is like a cruise ship? Yeah. A second metaphor for life is that life is like a battleship. On a battleship, you're engaged in a real war. You have a real enemy with real weapons, and they shoot real bullets at you. They don't serve you 14 meals a day. They don't fluff up your pillow. But you're taking back territory the enemy has stolen from you. I believe that life is more like the battleship. Yesterday, our dodgeball for Haiti tournament happened. Thank you, Matt, and all the others that made that happen. Ten teams of six high schoolers. Uh, Some of the um, players were really athletic. Some really not. (laughs) But they, they put on their best matrix moves to avoid the the balls, they tried to catch the line drive shots to get their teams back in. They tried to be gentlemen when the girls were left on the, on the um, courts, not trying to massacre them on the court. But I really believe that this whole metaphor for a battle is what life is about. I believe that young people are in a serious battle. The battle of the young is for purity. The enemy is always trying to tempt a young man, a young woman, into immorality. There's pressures to deal with at school, pressures to deal with in their sports, their personal lives. So viewing on the Internet or stepping across lines is viewed as a way of letting off steam, a pressure relief valve. I believe that young couples, many here are in a big battle. The battle for a young couple is between career and marriage. Trying to build a career. The career requires much of a young couple. There's travel involved. There's days away. At the same time, there's a marriage you need to give attention to, a battle of priorities. People in their 30s and 40s, many here, are also in a battle. 
The battle is how much discretionary time must be spent driving our kids to karate and jump rope and soccer. There's not only uh, practices involved, there's not only games, there's also expenses involved. There's also tournaments away to faraway cities. And we wonder sometimes, is it really worth it? There's the battle of the 50s and 60s and on into the 70s when the bodies aren't working like they used to. Sometimes we look upon life with some regrets. Sometimes when the alarm goes off, it's more like a fire drill. We all have battles, right? Battles with cancer, battles with the IRS, battles with insurance company, battles inside of ourselves, battles with our families. We're all fighting battles at one level or another. So I think it's fitting this morning we look at a story of a battle. Second Chronicles chapter 20, if you have a Bible. It's a story of a person whose name was Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a king over the land of Judah. And messengers came. First of all, we see the problem. Messengers came to him and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army from Edom is marching against you beyond the Dead Sea. And they're already at a place called En Gedi. Most battles are won or lost before they're fought. Leaders consult with their military commanders about the strength of their army vis-a-vis the strength of the opposition. You see, the scouts were out there, and they saw the enemy was coming against the nation. There was a threat against the nation of Israel. Even as today, there are many threats against the nation of Israel. Even as there are many threats against our own nation. And they knew the enemy's position. The king and his commanders realized they didn't stand a chance. So they began to pull back into a defensive position. They went back behind the walls around Jerusalem to find safety. So what would be the response of this king to his national problem? King Jehoshaphat was terrified by this news, and he begged the Lord for guidance. From the problem, he went into a call for prayer. He ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting and praying. So people from all the towns around Judah came to Jerusalem to seek the Lord's help. The news about a vast army marching toward his nation made the king very afraid. He was terrified by the news. The king knew his army was not as large as theirs. He knew his army could not win the battle. He was facing opposing forces that were too strong. So what was his response? What is your response when you know you're in a battle? The king's response was to go to the Lord to look for wisdom and for guidance. He turned his attention to seek the Lord's counsel. He did not focus upon his army and his power. He began to focus upon the Lord and his power. He knew that he was in a covenant relationship with God. And he appeals now to the God of covenant for his help. He knew that God had shown his favor to his nation. And now he began to beseech God for favor upon his nation. He proclaimed a time of fasting and praying for the entire nation. We know that God is our refuge and that God is our strength. And God is a present help in our times of trouble. And people from all the towns came to Jerusalem to the temple, to seek the Lord's help. I spent the first three weeks of this year fasting and praying, not eating sweets and meats, (laughs) kind of the Daniel diet of 
just eating fruits and vegetables. And it was a beautiful time of just using every grumble of my stomach <laughs> to die to my flesh a little bit and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. You see, it's in fasting and praying that we become attentive to the voice of God. You see, what God really wants to do in our lives is he wants us to get into alignment with him. And then out of that alignment comes forth our assignment. And I believe that God is raising up all across this nation intercessors, people that will stand in the gap, perhaps as many as 500,000 who will pray before this national election. A question is being asked, can America be saved? Can America be altered, the course we're on? I believe that we will enter into a period of national reform and correction, but first will be a time of spiritual awakening to the Lord. Before the uh, War of Independence of 1776, there was the great awakenings of the 1740s, the 1750s. And before the Civil War of the 1860s, there was a great awakening of the 1850s where one man in New York City began to pray. And then he was joined by the people of his church. And he was joined by the people of his city such that a great movement moved across America where 100,000 people in New York City were praying for revival. I believe there will be a movement of God's Spirit upon this land sweeping across America. The answer is, can America be saved? The answer is absolutely, if God's people will only pray. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. God stands ready to heal America. Do we stand ready to pray? I was talking with a person really active in the, um, in the uh, legislation down in Annapolis pertaining to same-sex marriage. And he himself is going to be part of the referendum action coming to the state. You know, 56,000 signatures are needed in order to get a referendum to appeal the decision of the legislature. And my name will be affixed to that referendum. And he said to me that in the past, you know, in the civil rights movement, so much of the same-sex marriage movement has been associated with civil rights. He said that civil rights movement had nothing to do with immorality. And this has everything to do with immorality. You see, I believe before we see a movement of reform in our land, there's going to be a movement of prayer and intercession in our land. You see, God wants to move across America, but he must first of all move inside of us. And he prayed, verse 6, O Lord, this is the leader's prayer, God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven, and you are the ruler of all the kingdoms on the earth. And you are powerful and you are mighty, and no one can stand against you. The king begins his prayer with, God of our fathers, you alone are God. <laughs> A good friend of mine, <laughs> he begins each day by saying, God, you are God, and I am not. He will get out of his bed, he'll arise and say out loud, God, you are God, and I am not. And sometimes his wife will say, Amen. When you say, God, you alone are God, you are saying that God is in the heavens, that God is above, that God is seated on a throne. So let us come boldly before the throne of grace 
God's throne room and receive his mercy and his grace in this great time of need. The king is making a declaration. God, you are the ruler of the kingdoms of the earth. God, you are powerful, so flex your muscle. God, you are mighty. There is none equal to you. God, there is no one that can stand against you. We tend to look at the nations, the nations that make a lot of noise, the national powers. We look at the evil, oppressive regime of Assad in Syria. We listen to the threats of Ahmad Dinajad in Iran. We wonder what will happen in North Korea with the new regime. We worry about the increasing economic strength of China. And it would have been easy for the king, it would have been easy for us to be in all of these nations, to be afraid of these nations because of their size or resources or their threats. But consider the greatness of our God compared to the nations. The power of the nations is limited. The power of our God is unlimited. Isaiah said, Behold the nations to God are but a drop in the bucket. All the nations before him are as nothing. They are counted to him as less than nothing. You see, to God, the nations may make a lot of noise, but they're only like a little drop in the bucket. The nations are nothing to God because God rules over the nations, just like God rules over our nation. But God is the great king, and his kingdom will endure forever. Verse 7. And, O our God, did you not drive out those who lived in this land when your people Israel arrived? And did you not give this land forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? God, there were seven nations living in this land, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, when we arrived. And God, did you not drive them out? God, you are powerful, and God, you are mighty. And God, no one can withstand you. And God, did you not say to Abraham, your friend, to your, to your descendants, I will give this land? God, he did not even have a son when you made that promise. But you enabled his wife, Sarah, to conceive, and you made Abram into a great nation. God, you are powerful, and God, you are mighty, and God, you keep all of your promises. What the king was saying is, God, you are completely sovereign over the nations, and you brought your people into the land, a good land, a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And God, you've given us promises. Now listen to me. Before you move forward in your faith, sometimes you have to look backward and hear God's faithfulness. You see, the more convinced you are that God has been faithful to every generation, the more convinced you are that if you live by faith in this generation, God will be faithful to you as well. This last week, I was up in New York City, and there were 600,000 Chinese immigrants and now in New York City. And I was talking with a woman, and she and her husband started a little church. And they just began to talk to people on the street, sharing the love of Jesus with these immigrants. And the church is now 900 people. And they've started a Bible school and a seminary. They now have five seminaries around the world. And she said to me, she said, as we have just been faithful to God, as we've lived our lives by faith, we have seen the faithfulness of our God. You see, when you live your life by faith, you will see the faithfulness of God. In order to move forward with faith, sometimes we have to look back upon God's faithfulness to us. Verse 8. For your people settled here, and they built a temple to honor your name. 
They said, whenever we are faced with calamities such as war, we can come and stand in your presence before this temple where your name is honored. We can cry out to you, and you will save us, and you will hear us, and you will rescue us. So here's the situation. God, he's saying, your people have settled here in this land. And Solomon built this temple to honor your name. And God, you have said, if we're ever faced with calamity, with a threat, with the prospect of war, we can come and stand in your presence. We can cry out to you, and you will save us. You will hear us, and you will rescue us. And that is exactly our situation. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot solve our problems with a national election. We have to come before God and ask God to save our nation. The essence of prayer is humility and dependence. It is admitting the truth about yourself. It's admitting the truth about your situation. It is learning not to rely on yourself, but to rely on an all-powerful God. Learning not to try to come up with your own solutions to the problems, but to listen to what God is saying to you. It is to cry out to God and not hold it in. Verse 12. Oh, our God, won't you stop them, he prayed. We are powerless against this great army that's about to attack us. We don't know what to do, but our, we are looking to you, O oh God. But our eyes are upon you. How many times in your life have you said, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I know what my mother used to do. I know what I have done to try to fix my own problems. But God, I don't know what to do about my family. God, I don't know what to do about my marriage. God, I don't know what to do about our financial condition. I don't know what to do about the problems we are facing. <laughs> Yesterday, I found myself in one of those situations again. God, I don't know what to do. I was picking up Kelly and uh, Jimmy from the airport. But I had forgotten my cell phone, which is a very important piece if you're going to the airport. So I went over to Dulles, and I was making loops around the airport, making about my fifth or sixth loop around, looking for them. Their plane was a little delayed. And so I saw one of the traffic control guards, and I stopped, and I said, I don't know what to do. And he said, what's your problem? And I said, I don't have a cell phone. He said, I don't have one either. I never have one. I don't care about having one. I said, he's not going to help me with my problem. <laughs> so I decided I'll pull into the cell phone waiting area. And nobody was even looking up. They're just looking at their cell phones, you know, texting somebody. So I went into this little Marriott, and I said, I don't know what to do. And she said, I'll help you. You see, we say so much, Lord, I don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. It's the heavenly, heavenward look. It's looking to God for his help, looking to God for his guidance, looking to God for his wisdom looking to God for his strength, looking to God for his power, looking to God for his deliverance, looking to God for his healing. God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are upon you. I'm not looking at my situation. I'm not looking at my circumstance. I'm looking to you, God, for help. So what happens here in this land? 
What happens in America? We find ourselves, many of us, dealing with a spirit of heaviness. The spirit of heaviness can be an oppressive spirit. It can be a depressive spirit. We can be depressed by our circumstances, oppressed by the enemy. So what do we do when we feel this heaviness upon our hearts? You know what you do. You're home. You're feeling depressed about your situation. You're feeling oppressed by the enemy. So you turn on the television to try to find some relief, to watch something that is uplifting, right? And you get bombarded with shows that are worthless. And then beyond that, you see drug company advertisements. You see food and beer commercials. So what you say is, you know what? I'm feeling heavy about my life. I think what I'll do is I'll drink. Oh, here's a better idea. I think I'll eat. Or I'll just take some pills to deal with this feeling of heaviness. You see, what God's solution to the issue is, Lord, I don't know what to do about my situation, but my eyes are upon you. God, would you intervene? God, would you help me? God, would you strengthen me? God, would you give me some wisdom, some guidance? I don't know what to do. I don't know what my next step should be. You see, what the king does is he says, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are fixed upon you. My eyes are fixed upon Jesus. As long as our eyes are fixed only upon the situation, only upon the circumstance, we will feel the depression from the circumstance and the oppression from the enemy. But when our eyes turn away from that circumstance and our eyes turn to Jesus, that's when we find the relief and the freedom. And God wants to set the captive free. He wants the oppressed person to take off the garment of heaviness and put on the garment of praise. You see, God wants to be praised in those moments when you don't know what to do. God, I don't know what to do, but you know what my next step is. God, show it to me that I can take it. So there arose a prophet. His name was Jehaziel. Jehaziel was a man of God. And he heard the king's prayer, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And this is what he said in verse 15. Listen, all you people of Judah, of Jerusalem. Listen, all you people gathered here. Listen, King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged by this mighty army. For the battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. The prayer is... We don't know what to do. But Lord, our eyes are upon you. It's answered by the prophet. You don't know what to do. This is what God says to you. Do not be afraid. To those of you who are battling against cancer, do not be afraid. To those who are facing financial ruin, bankruptcy, foreclosure, do not be afraid. Fear is when we feel and believe the enemy is stronger. We feel the situation is hopeless. God says, do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. For your enemy is not stronger. Your God is bigger and your God is stronger than the enemy. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. And your situation is not hopeless. Your God is about to give you a battle plan. Your hope is on the way. And these are the very words that God spoke to Joshua. Do not be afraid 
And do not be discouraged, for I am with you. Joshua was about to fight the biggest battle of his life. He was sizing up the city of Jericho and her walls. And he was considering his battle plan. His battle plan may be to scale the walls or dig under the walls or take the battering ram and knock down the city gate. And so he saw a man with a sword, the commander of the Lord's army. And he said, are you for us or are you against us? And he said, neither. I'm the commander. And Joshua bowed before him in reverence. And he said, what message would my Lord give to me? And he said, take off your sandals, for the ground wherein you're standing is holy ground. You see, first of all, we must get ourselves into alignment with God. And then God gives us our assignment, the battle plan. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged, for I am with you, God is saying. And these are the very words that David said before the battle. This battle is not my battle. This battle is the Lord's. Look at the size of the two persons. Goliath, nine feet tall, 300 pounds, never lost a fight. David, 145 pounds, freckled, never been in a fight. But he said, this battle is not my battle. This battle is the Lord's battle. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged, for the battle is the Lord. Tomorrow, he says in verse 16, march out against them. Take your positions. Then he says these words. You will not even need to fight. Take up your position. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. For God is with you. And God is for you. And God is going to fight this battle with you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. God's deliverance in our lives is sometimes so powerful, we don't even have to fight the battle. I was talking to a friend of mine, he's in his 60s now, about his battle with alcohol. When he was in his 30s, he was an alcoholic. He said that he would wake up in the morning and make himself some strong black coffee and take one of those um, shot glasses and pour the liquor into his coffee to kind of get his motor started. And then he would go to do a construction job and work through the morning And at noontime, he'd go to a liquor store and find some malt liquor. And then he would finish the afternoon and find another liquor store and buy a pint, usually a vodka, and drink the entire pint before he came home to his wife. And he did this on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And then he heard the good news about Jesus Christ, about his power to deliver us. And he put his faith in Jesus. And what God did for him was he delivered him from the desire to even drink. He says that, you know, if someone's cooking with wine, like chicken breasts with wine, he'll smell the aroma of the alcohol and he'll make it it disgusting to him. It's repugnant to him because God has taken away his desire to even drink. But to others, there's a battle. I know a believer who struggles with alcohol who says, I go to a meeting every day of my life. If I travel to another city, I go to another meeting. I find myself a sponsor, and I have friends who hold me accountable. You see, I have a battle, a battle with alcohol, and I know I need structure and support in order to be winning this battle against alcohol. You see, in some cases, what God will do is completely deliver. In some cases, God will call us into the fight, 
into the battle, to be a warrior, to fight against something that would have control of our lives. And this is really beautiful, verse 18. When Jehoshaphat learns that God is with him, that God is going to fight for him, to not be afraid and discouraged, that God knows where the enemy is, and God's going to enable him to conquer over his enemy, what he does is he bows low with his face to the ground. And all the people begin to worship the Lord their God. What happens is now there's this national revival breaking out where there's worship in the land. The leader begins by worshiping, and the people also are worshiping with him. And they begin to praise the Lord with a really loud voice. God, you are strong, and God, you are mighty, and God, you are the conquering king, and God, you have given us the victory. And they began to thank the Lord. You see, praise God inhabits the praises of his people. And God wants us to learn how to praise him, to praise him, to say, God, you are strong, and God, you are mighty, and God, you are powerful, and God, you are sovereign, and God, you are holy, and God, you are good, and God, you are faithful, and God, you are true. And the story goes on like this. He says to the people, just put your faith in the Lord your God. Put your confidence in what the prophet has said. And the the choir went out first. And they began to sing praises to the Lord. And when they sang praises to the Lord, it confounded, it confused the enemy. The enemy didn't want to think. You see, the enemy's strategy is to terrorize you. You know, to make threats against you. Some say, when in in doubt from without, run in circles, scream and shout. So they basically enter into a panic mode, right? But God wants us to turn into a praise mode. And he called his people to praise him. And when they praised the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, the enemy began attacking one another. And God's people won the battle. So let's think about who God is as we think about the problems that we face that our God is provider. He's promised to supply all of our needs. That our God is shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not be in want. The Lord is our healer. By his stripes we are healed. The Lord is our banner. His banner over us is love. The Lord is the mighty one who strengthens the weakened ones. The Lord is holy. The Lord is our deliverer. So we're going to show now a few of some of the names of God. And as you think about your own situation, you may be saying, Lord, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to worship you. And my eyes are going to turn to you. And I'm going to claim one of your names. I'm going to declare one of your names. I'm going to praise you for one of your names and attach my situation to that name. And I'm going to call upon you, God, to give me victory in my life. Let's see the tape. Our Father, we're gathered in the name of Jesus. You are a strong and powerful God. We call upon your names. We praise you, God, for who you are and your track record in the past of how you've helped your people in times gone by. We're a people, Lord, in great need. We are desperate for you, Lord. 
We don't know what to do, but we now fix our eyes upon you. We worship you, Lord, and we praise you for the God that you truly are. Come and help your people, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us? Once again, as always, there's a place to pray. There's a cross to come to. You feel the freedom in the Spirit to call upon your God, and God's people will pray with you.